What's up, everybody? My name is Joshua Stein from the J. Stein Law Firm in Atlanta, Georgia, a personal injury law firm. And welcome to the next episode of Sports and Torts, where each week we sit down with our friends, peers, and colleagues and discuss sports, law, and business. I apologize from the beginning that you have the hosting duties are back to me and not to Dana. I tried to get her to join us today, but she said she had other things to do, so maybe in a future episode. But we have a great episode for you guys today, and it's a guest that I've been looking forward to having for a very, very, very long time. He's a man who checks many boxes here on the show. He's an accomplished businessman in banking and real estate. He works with lawyers every day and is familiar with what lawyers do. He's a dogs fan. He's a Braves fan. He's a guy with great golf stories. He likes to cook, likes to eat, and likes to drink. Ladies and gentlemen, my very good friend, Robert Unell. Thanks, Josh. Glad to be here. Glad to be back again. That's right. You're a second-time uh, participant on the podcast. So yeah. Thank you. Uh, national Championship Review. That was episode five or six that we uh, we relived our trip to Indy and the Dogs' victory. So it's good to have you back. Not having to share the stage with you know Gans and those other guys. Like they love talking. And now this is your moment. It might be able to get a word in. Well, listening to that bio, it's it's no wonder we've been friends for over twenty years, man. Yeah, uh, yeah, a lot in common. Uh, you know, going back from sports days to dogs, and uh, you know, all the way up through the professional careers. That's right. Well, we're here at my house. Um, we are drinking some Moscow Mules, courtesy of our friend Garrett Nail, who uh, is also here with us today. Uh, Garrett brought a fantastic recipe of uh, Tito's and. Uh, ginger beer. The, the the secret, if I can say this, I don't want to give away his secret uh, recipe, is some bitters. The, the bitters totally adds the punch. And, um, you know, we're going to have a good time. You, you enjoying the drink, uh, I'm, enjoy, I'm enjoying the drink. Uh, came in, you know, had one waiting for me. Uh, very good. Can't wait to have another. You know, as I'm sitting here talking to you, the one thing I think I left out of the bio is that uh, you've got some sneaky good dance moves. Uh, I'm retired from that, but back in the day I could. Um, right now, I don't know that my uh, uh, legs can really uphold that anymore, but uh, occasionally it still comes out, but I pay for it the next day. So I didn't realize you retired. I just thought because we haven't been on the wedding circuit as much that you just hadn't had the opportunities, but the bar mitzvah circuit we're right in the middle of. Yeah, that's a little bit odd to get out there, and, and I can't compete with, with the youngsters these days, and I also don't want to end up on TikTok. <laughs> I loved it. So the dance was called the Wax and Chop, which, by the way, it would go viral on TikTok. Yep. The, the Wax and Chop was an original. Um, it, it's more like kind of like a little bouncing thing. Uh, like I said, my knees can't take that how anymore. How did you come up with those dance moves? Because for the people who don't know, like describe what you're doing. Uh, you know, it's kind of a crouch down, uh, bouncing up and down, hands chopping, uh, maybe a little bit of waxing going in there. And that's why it was called the Wax and Chop. Not really sure where it came from. Uh, I'm probably don't remember that uh but it it was definitely a good one always a crowd favorite you were always such a good sport too when we we would ask for to get it going you are right into it so i think i think you need to pull out of retirement graham's bar mitzvah is like two years away two or three years away so you got a couple years to get ready for it is that we, cool we can work on that maybe i'll get some break dancing all right very, very good well look um i gave a little bit of a background about you but please introduce yourself your family where you live where you grew up all that all that good stuff uh, I grew up in Atlanta, uh, in Sandy Springs, went to Riverwood High School, uh, then off to the University of Georgia, where I majored in uh, real estate in the Terry College of Business. Uh, and then after that, uh, went to uh, move back to Atlanta and start in the banking industry. Uh, and then I am married with two wonderful children and wife, uh, five-year-old Miller uh, is a little baseball player, and uh, seven-year-old Riley, and she is a gymnast. 
Yeah, your kids, great athletes. Uh, right, uh, Miller, five years old. That dude's got some skills. He 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 can hit a baseball. We we got to work on catching it. Um, but yeah, he's he he's aggressive out there. Whether it's on the baseball field or soccer, which at that age is is all you can ask for is to just get out there and enjoy it. The catching comes second. You know, I mean, it, they all have to grow into that. But if you if you had a kid at five that's got the hand eye coordination to hit and hit strong, like that just shows. He's got a good career ahead of him, so I'll be excited to to watch him kind of grow. Um, you mentioned banking, like that's what I always associated you with, you know, with your profession. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was different banks. I mean, the banks always kept changing names, right? But Bank of America is kind of what I remember where you started. Is yeah. that well? I actually started at Wachovia uh, and and was there for about eighteen months. When speaking of changing names, the merger with First Union went down. Uh, my last day at Wachovia before leaving was actually nine eleven oh one. Um, and so it was kind of, uh, it was a planned day, but that day was obviously shortened and I'll kind of remember that that's how long I was there for, because it's a day that you always remember. But I started at Wachovia, uh, and then moved over to bank of America during the merger transition, actually had the opportunity to, um, walk into a relationship manager job, uh, and, and take on a book of business that already existed. So it was a little bit easier than starting out and having to, to grow from scratch. So it was kind of nice having a start and, and, and worked with a really good group of folks over there, uh, in that group for, that was, uh, 2001. And for about six years, six and a half years, I worked on the production side, uh, in the home builder finance group. I to say, cause real estate was always kind of the subpart or component of what you're working on. Right. And so what did that look like? Like what kind of deals were you working on? What were you learning on the banking side that has led you to where you are today? So at that, at that point, it was really uh, banking builders and developers, um, you know, home builders that were uh, at that time guys that were building, some of them building five to seven houses a year. And I had guys that were building 500 houses a year uh, and they would have credit facilities of which we would underwrite, um, you know, recommend for approval, uh, administer. Uh, and then obviously a lot of that was relationship management, cross sales to other sorts of banking products, whether it be treasury, uh, swaps, um, you know, private banking relationships, et cetera. So I was the point person for those builders, typically their CFO, uh, and handling their financing, um, and help them grow as a business. I mean, can you imagine the changes you've seen in just, just home building itself, uh, just it, the developers from, from early two thousands until where we're at now, like, like explain the, the, the changes that all those people in that industry has gone through. Well, you know, it, when I first started in, you know, call it 2000, uh, all the way up through 2007, which I actually, that's when I actually switched over at the bank they were asking for volunteers. I was at the, the beginning of the big downturn, the great recession, I guess, uh, they were asking for volunteers for folks that wanted to switch over to special assets group, which is loan workout. Uh, and I raised my hand. Uh, so I saw what went from a, you know, a booming industry of, of five or six years of expansive growth, um, low interest rates. You know, I know we say low interest rates now, but still what were historically low interest rates. And I saw guys that, you know, we're, we're at the top of the world. And then, you know, within days due to the Lehman crisis, the housing crisis, you want to name it, uh, that had nothing. Uh, you know, they had all of their the, you know, guys that had called a builder with 100 houses may have had at that time. It wouldn't be uncommon to have 60 or 70 percent of them under contract. Well, what, what happened is, is you know, those fell out and home builders are always ahead of the game with their developed lot inventory and developed lots are wonderful but developed lots are non-revenue producing assets. So they sit on your balance sheet. And if you're not selling other stuff, you don't have the money to pay for those lots. So when you say fell out, fell out, is that because of, of bad lending practices and bad underwriting? 
Well, it was it was at that time it, mortgages were impossible to come by for consumers, and home builders are only able to sell houses. Uh, you know, very few people in this world are paying cash for houses. So if your consumers are unable to purchase, or if their purchase power decreases due to rising interest rates, uh, you lose your pool of buyers. And without buyers, inventory sits. Sitting inventory equates to carry cost and interest. Um, and the longer that things sat, the less that the lots that they had on their inventory were, were turning. And at the same time, in true supply and demand, prices are dropping. So it's, it's the perfect storm for distress in a real estate world. And this is looking back 2008 yep. during that time period, because you know, after I associated you with banking and the real estate, I've, I've now associated you with, like you said, loan workout, bankruptcy, reorgs. And that's because they needed someone to do that. And you raise your hand, you said, let's go. So the bank at that time had probably about eight to 10 people across the country in real estate that did loan workout. Uh, I joined a group in the Southeast that had three people in it, uh, three, I would call it, you know, officers that were handling the day-to-day stuff and a few analysts. Um, and I joined, I was number five, I think, or six, uh, at its peak, that Southeast group, we were up over 30, uh, and there were probably 150 across the country. Um, so I was in early. Um, and then as things started to also wind down and call it, you know, 2012, 2013, all the way up to 2014, even, uh, the group continued to decline. But at that point I was pretty jaded on lending. Uh, I had seen so much bad stuff and had this you know, eye to find anything wrong with something. I knew that I was not going to go back in and be a lender at that point. So dumb this down for me, if, if you would, because um, I really don't, 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 don't know much about the industry. So you're hired by the bank to try to work out a loan that someone's not being able to pay on. Because, so let me take a step back. So when I was at the bank doing loan workout, when a loan goes into a certain risk rating category, whether it's doubtful or you know non-accrual, it gets shifted over to the special assets group, which is a group that is designed to work with borrowers uh, to come to solutions, whether it be forbearance, um, sometimes if it's non-recourse, just working to give back the loans. Um, you know, you, you're, you were given a toolbox of what you can do, but that's also driven by what the original underwriting is in the terms of the deal. You got to live by that. You right? got to live by that. And so sometimes you had, you know, ability to go after a personal guarantee. Other times you did not. Um, I left the bank with those skills in 2015, 2014 and went to go work. Then I went to go work for the outside consulting firm, which I think is what you were talking about. So, well, I was, I was more talking about like, what's when you, when you enter into a transaction where you're trying to, I guess, work it out for these people, like, what is the, what is the goal? Like what, what kind of tools can you use to try to get, have the bank recoup their money or get these people in a place where they can start paying? So again? the first thing on, on the real estate side is, is you want to preserve your collateral. Uh, your collateral is 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 what you your your biggest primary source of repayment. So in the home building world, you wanted to make sure if a house was half finished that it was secured. At that time, yeah, we had people breaking into houses, and you hear the stories about people stealing copper. I mean, I've seen houses where people literally went in and ripped out the pipes of a of a house that was finished and nobody living in, and there was you know six feet of water in the basement and it had literally come through the ceiling because they just were careless and ripped the copper out and let the water run. I hate to stop you, but speaking of copper, it makes this Moscow mule that much better, (laughs) right? I don't know why. I mean, it's, it's freezing cold. It's got that beautiful icing. So you're, you're talking about copper and I'm looking at this drink and like, God, copper is a very useful metal. 
Yeah, copper copper plumbing and air conditioning units were some things that disappeared really quickly uh, in 2008, 2009. That in manhole covers um, because scrap metal is done by weight. And so guys would go to these vacant subdivisions, they'd pick up manhole covers, they'd put them in the trunk of a stolen car, and then they'd go have them crushed and they weigh the car. Well, with you know 10 manhole covers in the back, they got more money. So I feel like you've told us stories about going to chase those people down and trying to get your stuff back. <laughs> I, mean, I do know of some guys that, that did do GPS on an air conditioning unit and chased it down. And it was found in the back of a stolen V103 van. Um, you know, and they called the police and the police really wanted nothing to do with it, but they did come and they were able to get their air conditioning compressors back that's amazing but going back to so you want to preserve your collateral whether it's it's making search secure if the construction has exposed if the house is framed you don't want to leave it out there for that long um, if it's an occupied um, income producing you want to make sure that your tenants are you know getting the services that are agreed upon in the lease because they're your source of income uh, so we would work with the borrowers determine their ability whether or not they were able to do that themselves we would go out and inspect the properties uh, in an imperfect world they would you know we would give them a forbearance on paying interest in return for them showing the care for the houses forbearance means like a stop yeah we would we would forbear from exercising rights um, and you know typically it would also say hey you know we're not going to charge interest we're going to still accrue interest but we're not charging it uh, and really just try to focus on um, preservation of the asset and ultimately sale of the asset. So the, the, the one that I always remember that you're involved in was a rentals plantation. Yep. Um, I always associate you with that piece of property. Yep. So can you talk a little about, about that deal getting into it and what you had to do? Yeah. So Reynolds was, was, was a unique case, but not necessarily unique in that um, there were n- numerous residential developments that were highly amenitized to draw in consumers and buyers. Uh, those amenities cost money to build and they cost money to operate. And those amenities continue to have to be operate even when sales slow down. Uh, so, you know, the ultimate goal is, is your sales are good. You, you subsidize it. Uh, and when it gets to a critical mass, you turn those amenities over to the homeowners association, just like you would in a, in a smaller scenario with the pool. Uh, but in these cases, we're talking about golf courses, clubhouses, hotels, et cetera. And I should back up for those that don't know. I mean, Reynolds Plantation is a development uh, you know, outside of Atlanta, a couple hours outside of Atlanta, six golf courses, hotels, beautiful lake, the whole thing. Yep. And and so um, one of the reasons I'm able to kind of talk about this is because it was filed as a public receivership. So uh, ultimately, the bank made the decision to file for a receivership uh, and place it in the hands of a court-appointed receiver to care for and operate the asset. And that was you, uh, I was not the receiver. Uh, I was on behalf of the bank who petitioned for the receiver. We funded the receiver uh, and we had certain rights in there to be able to, to fund, et cetera. Um, and within that, the receiver was given the ability to sell the asset with the proceeds coming back to the banks. Well, I'll tell you this. I was with you. First off, you were there every week for how long? Uh, every week or every other week for about 18 months. Yeah. It was not a bad gig. No, I'm not going to lie. I mean, it was, you, you were at the Ritz at Lake Oconee, which yeah. is the, the, one of the best hotels in the state. And I, you were nice enough to invite me and a couple guys up a few times. And you ran that place, man. I mean, whether, whether you say receivership or not, I can tell you it was, yes, sir, Mr. Yunel. Yes, sir, what can I do for you, Mr. Yunel? That's their level of service there. But uh, I will say the staff that is out there, um, the majority of them in leadership were out there uh, when we were 
uh, involved and they are phenomenal. They still, that, that, that property, my understanding, and I don't know the financials on it has been extremely successful. You can go online and just look and see what it costs to, to go there on a random Tuesday night and it's see over, like, Hey, you know, it's a, it's, it's, it's a good deal. <laughs> it's a thousand dollars a night now. Yeah, it is e- easily, it is. even like a, a Tuesday in a random month. Um, so then going back to my first question. So the goal there was to get it back up and running operating. So it's making money to then either sell or get back in, in good graces with. The yeah. Bank. And, and with that, you know, there there's, you know, everybody thinks of it as just the golf courses, et cetera, but but there's a tremendous amount of undeveloped land there and understanding what that land could be developed into and running models to figure out on the absorption and ultimately coming back to, you know, not to try to get to, but the present value, there, there's a lot that goes into it besides just looking at, you know, Oh, Hey, we got six golf courses. Uh, you know, that property, really the golf courses were, a, a, you know, accretive to the value of the lots and the value there was really in the real estate and in the hotel. Um, Golf is not a money maker in most cases. Um, it's a very difficult business to so, to make money in. So speaking of golf, of course, this this show is called Sports and Tours. We have a, a lot of sports lean to it. Me and you love golf. You've worked a lot around golf courses. I remember you told me one time, like, I'm about to own this driving range or something to that effect. <laughs> yeah. um, you got some stories about getting involved in some golf deals? Yeah. And, and you know, like I said, golf courses typically don't make money. Uh, I can say out of all the golf courses that I've worked on, whether it be as a lender or uh, in now capacity. Can I stop you real quick? Indian Hills Country Club, that golf course makes money. That makes money. I was going to say. That makes money. Yes. Yeah. There there, is one Their their business model, get as many members as you can, charge them again. (laughs) They they make money. But go ahead. One club, and I won't name it, but it is a very nice high-end club uh, in South Carolina it makes money. Um, and it is unique in that it makes money and it has phenomenal real estate with it. But for the most part, as I said, golf courses are loss leaders when they're tied to real estate. Um, you know, successful golf courses are owned by typically by their members, uh, or a individual that will subsidize it because they love the game of golf. Um, you know, and you do have some very good companies out there like club corp and others, but you, you know, nothing against club corp or, or, or Troon or any of the other golf management companies, but there's a unique difference in between seeing a member owned managed club or a individual high net worth individual that owns a golf club. So when you say a lost leader, you mean make it more attractive for the home sites and for home buyers and for people to live in that area. Yeah. And then ultimately when the neighborhood is mature, you say, thanks neighbors. And there's a way to turn it over in the declarant documents back to the homeowners association and it becomes their problem. And so, you know, if dues were 300 bucks a month, but it costs 500 bucks to break even on it, it's not the developer that looks like the bad guy raising dues to 500. Well, ma- it's their peers. I mean, maintenance alone on a golf course, right? I mean, yeah, the, the yeah. landscaping, the the maintenance of the grass, of the greens. You can't operate a golf course in very good condition or good condition for probably under $800,000 a year right now. Yeah. It just it's it's just crazy and if you start thinking about what it takes to 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 make that sort of revenue with food and beverage and other things. Uh, and that's, that's bare minimum. I mean, there are golf courses out there that run a million and a half a year, uh, in, in maintenance and some that run two. So one other thing that I always look to you about is you, you can forecast economic trends based on what you're seeing in your banking world with real estate. Like you're very good at saying this is about to happen. This is too many, too many vacancies or over whatever it might be. So you, you worked and lived through 2008 Compare that to what we're seeing now in terms of kind of the opposite in terms yeah. of. So now that I'm on the consulting side of it um, and have been for, 
I guess, seven or eight years now. Uh, it's, it's interesting seeing because I work with a lot of folks that are non-real estate also on the turnaround and restructuring side. And I also work very closely with counterparts in our real estate group on new origination. So I'm seeing everything from what we call cradle to grave on the real estate side is how we built the practice, where we work with CMBS and Life Co's and banks on their underwriting up front all the way through asset management, and then obviously turnaround and restructuring, um, which I do some of, uh, but I also do some front end. So we're seeing a lot of, of interesting dynamics out there. Uh, you know, the lending market is still extremely hot, uh, which has a lot of similarities to the turn beginnings of 2007. Um, we're seeing, you know, a little bit of an uptick in consumer mortgage rates, which will have an impact most likely on absorption or consumer affordability, uh, very similar to that. But we're also seeing that, you know, inflation is up, costs are up. So it, it's really a, a difficult time for, to plan and when you say into the future. We are starting to see, though, some signs of distress out there. We're starting to get calls from people that are saying, hey, you know, things are slipping a little bit. Uh, on the multifamily world, uh, it's still on fire. But how much lower can cap rates go? I mean, how, you know, is, is a Class A apartment complex in Atlanta a 3% cap? Um, and can you continue to underwrite rent growth? And at the rates that it's been doing, and it's got to stop a lot at some of what, point. A lot of the appreciation is rent is rate. based on that, yeah. And I, and I was going to ask you unfairly, I might add, to look into your crystal ball about what the next eighteen months looks like, because these prices, as an, as someone who's a, who's a novice and doesn't really know, I just feel like at some point it has to stop. It can only go so high, but maybe I'm wrong. I I, I think that it depends on the asset classes. Um, you know, when you look at multifamily, yeah. I mean, if if raise if wages don't rise. Inflation continues to rise where people are paying more for their consumer goods. They're going to have to figure out where, you know, you've got to eat, whatnot. Could you maybe go move up the street a few miles away and pay two or $300 less a month, uh, a rent in month, a month of rent? Um, those Moscow mules. Um, they, they sneak up on I've had a half of one. Um, so at some point, you've got to figure out where, where you're going to make the cuts. And you know, ultimately, that a lot of times comes down to, to housing. The build, the build for rent um, thing where you've got home builders out building uh, single-family homes for rent is on fire. Um, and that's competing too, especially as people don't want to, uh, you know, the American dream is no longer owning a home. It's, it's, it's having a home or having a place and, and doing other things. So if you can go rent a house and put your kids in a, in a good school better than you could in an apartment um, and you're near work and, and you're in a good community, you're happy. Um, and, and those groups have really taken off recently. It will be interesting. I've always said uh, on housing, you know, nobody's really ever looked at the amount of beds that are being put. Everybody looks at single family housing and you look at absorption and how many people are buying houses. And then you look at occupancy on multifamily and rent. But if you're building a ton of apartments, you're building a ton of build for rent and you're building a ton of new homes, there's only so many heads to go in beds and you've got to figure out where the happy medium is. And so like it's an oversupply is, is whether it's, it's multifamily or fee simple, supply is supply. 
Only so many heads to go in beds. Is that a Robert E. Nell original? It is. It is. It's like, just come with it right now? Yeah, I, know. Not- I mean, I've said that. I've, I've said that for a long time. I thought that, that was a, a Moscow yeah. mule and No, fuse, no, but- no. I mean, for, for a while, like, really trying to look at data on the correlation between multifamily and single family. And, and you know, they're, they're, they're segmented right now, and there's a ton of data out on both. But, you know, it gets even further down into data and something that, you know, is above my pay grade, but net migration. Where like people people, mo- people moving to the south, people, people moving, to, moving Georgia. to the south, exactly, and and where you know, and not only that, but this the, their their socioeconomic, uh, you know, where are they on 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 being able to affordability of things? Is it high end jobs? Is it workforce whatnot? And there's got to be a, a a kind of a compromise of of not only luxury housing but workforce housing. So you had said about being a consultant now, and I kind of. Unfortunately, I'm sorry, I glossed over what you're currently doing, which is consulting for a company called Ancora. Am I saying yeah, that right? Ancora. Yep. Ancora, yeah. So, um, so is consultant your title? Is that? Uh, not- yeah, I mean, yeah, I would say consultant advisor. You know, that's kind of, you know, what I would say is, is, uh, you know, we're a professional services firm, um, just just like you guys probably heard of FTI. Uh, I was at Alvarez and Marsal beforehand, uh, before we left about three years ago to start the real estate practice over there. Uh, yeah, we are a turnaround and restructuring firm at Heritage uh, that was founded by some some former FDI folks, but we are a full service accounting firm, you know, uh, not accounting, uh, you know, consultant firm that do not do accounting. Um, so consultants that, that, you know, people love consultant jokes, they love lawyer jokes, yeah. right? Um, and I get it. So, so when people would ask you, like, what is it that you do as a consultant? What do you do for, for Ancora? Like, what is your elevator pitch answer to them? So, um, you know, I'm in the real estate, uh, it's called area anchor real estate advisory. Uh, like I said earlier, we kind of take real estate from cradle to grave. We've got about 25 professionals in the real estate group. Um, we've got guys that are MAI appraisers that we do valuation management for some of the largest lenders in the country. We do contract underwriting for some of the largest lenders. We do asset management, which would be kind of that mature after origination side of things. We do interim management on assets that are on the way down. And then finally, we do turnaround and restructuring uh, in the real estate group. Uh, we cut across a lot of the other business lines at the firm, uh, whether it be business valuation, because most businesses do have a real estate component to it, whether it's the fair market values, whether it is helping out on their lease accounting, um, all the way up to whether they own their buildings. Bob, that's all, that's, that's all very smart stuff. Uh, I don't, I don't think no, I can even have a good follow up question to all that. that y'all <laughs> can you can you ask the question for me because that's some that's some heady stuff you're doing, man. Well, yeah, I mean it, it is, and we were designed we, when we built the group. We wanted to be able to 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 be able to kind of I guess smooth out the income streams. You know, a lot of firms are do what we call the upfront work, and you know they'll do the valuation management, they'll do the underwriting. There are asset management groups out there, and there are turnaround groups out there, but. They are all usually you know, either flying high or flying low, depending on the cycle. And then you're doing expert witness stuff too, like yeah. in in legal cases and lawsuits. Yeah. Um, which is a, is that a whole other sub function of the job, or well, the two kind of go hand? They in kind hand? of go hand in hand. So across our group, we've got I think five MAI, which are appraisal institute members, which is designation for appraisers, um, and they do a lot of valuation. Um, testimony work. Uh, you know, we like to say if it's not effed up, we're not working on it, um, typically in that world. Uh, so, you know, they are diminution of value. Um, they work a lot with our construction practice on if a project's delayed, not only was it the increase in construction costs, but the changes of value. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of business divorces are centered around real estate. 
Um, there are also um, a lot of personal divorces that are centered around real estate, which is something that Garrett and I have talked about. Um, but it is, uh, so that side of it from our valuation side. I do on the expert witness side and primarily involved in um, lender liability cases, which is, and, and we're some on the lender side, um, some on the debtor side. Um, so with that- Popping yeah, ginger beer yeah. for another round, I like it. <laughs> uh, so you know, we're, we, we are not just you know, debtor side or creditor side. Um, you know, obviously we run conflicts just like the law firms do, but uh, right now uh, I'm involved in three cases uh, on that. One of which is a lender side for a national lender. Uh, one of which is a borrower side for against a national lender. And then the other one is a small borrower side that is against a private lender. So our friend Jason Gans always likes to kid you about carrying lawyers, baseball cards and loving lawyers and all that kind of stuff, um, which is funny. And, yeah, and yeah. You know, I mean, the, the reality is you do do a lot of work in the legal field and are hired by lawyers and Garrett Nella, who we are, who brought up, we brought up earlier, he's here and you've done work with him. And maybe if we have some time, we'll have him come on and talk about the case y'all worked on together. But is that right? I mean, lawyers are hiring you or vice versa. You're hiring lawyers. So your job does have a lot of interplay with the legal field. So for the expert witness and um, the turnaround restructuring, uh, lawyers are our primary uh, source of referrals. Uh, when people get in trouble, the first person they call is their attorney. Um, you know, especially on the real estate side, they're going to call the guy that, that closed the loan for them and say, Oh God, I'm, you know, I'm going to break this covenant or whatnot. What can you help me with? And most of the time they're going to then go to their bankruptcy or restructuring partners. And, and that's who we like to be in front of. We like to be in front of the real estate litigators and the bankruptcy guys. And so for people that don't know, like, an expert witness is somebody that the court will allow a party to bring in to explain a highly complicated issue to a jury or to a judge. Yeah. And you have to be qualified to do that. Like you can't just come in and say, Hey, my name is Robert Nell. I'm going to talk about underwater basket weaving or whatever. Yeah, and, it, unless that's what you do. Yeah. Right. And so in my world, our experts are often medical professionals, you know, someone like Sean Traub, who was on here a while ago. Like if it's an orthopedic case, he'd come in and say, yes, this injury was caused this way. Here's the treatment. So you're you are you are being qualified as an expert in certain real estate or banking matters and courts of law. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Primarily, do we call you like Mister Expert when we see you? Or? No, 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 no. Primarily, what what I focus on in those cases is origination, underwriting, and servicing of loans. And and yeah, did the lender how, was their actions were they you know best practices for the lender side of it? Uh, did they violate their own lending policies? Uh, you know. Did they act in good faith? Uh, did the lender cause damages? One way or the other. And you've been hired on both sides, yep. right? So, so your job is to be neutral looking at what the information tells you and then give your opinion about this went wrong, this went right, this person was at fault. And it's simplifying things. Yep. But um, So you, you've been in court and testified. I have been in court. Do you enjoy that? Because some people... Some people don't like being in there. It doesn't bother me. I, I will say it, it doesn't bother me. Um, if you get up there, you know what you're supposed to be doing. Uh, if you know, you know whatnot and you remain focused and you don't get thrown off, um, yeah, there are a lot of, of attorneys out there that will try to throw you off. They'll, they'll ask the same question five different ways, and you can't be afraid to, you know, you're not being a smart ass. Do you mind rephrasing that? It's so funny you say that because when I prepare my clients for questioning, that's the exact example I give them. I'm going to say, I'll say something like, he's going to ask you a question. You're going to tell the truthful answer, which he's not going to like that answer or she. And they're going to ask it four or five different ways to try to get you to change your answer. Right. And our job as lawyers is to object and not let them do that, but they can still ask these questions. So some people get flustered and they say, well, I'm going to change my answer. 
Um, but it sounds like you're pretty good at, at sticking to it. And, and don't, don't, you know, especially if you're being deposed by, by opposing counsel, don't say anything. If the question is a yes or no question, say yes or no, make them work for it, make them earn it. Um, you know, if there is something though, that you know, that, uh, you need to get across, but you know that they're not going to ask you, you've got to find a way to get it in because they're obviously, you know, when you're being deposed, they're not going to, you know, it's not as if you're on the stand and you can, you know, have your, your direct and be able to kind of go through it. You've got to be able to, to make sure you get some facts across because a good attorney is going to style the questions where they won't allow you to get across some of the pertinent points. So I counsel my clients all the time on how to answer those kind of questions and, and the, the, the behavior to have and be professional and be polite and don't get flustered. Well, I had to testify one time. I was awarded attorney's fees in the case. And so you have to put in, put in uh, evidence about what your fees are and they can cross-examine you. And I'll be damned if I got so pissed off with the guy who was cross-examining me, doing the exact opposite of what I tell my clients, yeah. not to, or t- doing the opposite of what I, what I tell my clients to do. Have you, I mean, so, so tell us about, you know, things that attorneys have cross-examined you on or techniques that have worked versus styles that you're like, come on, man, that's, that's just a terrible approach. Uh, I, you know, I can say that really I've only had one really just kind of, you know, obstinate most of the time. You know, counsel, if they realize that you're going to go in, you're you're going to be a professional. They're going to be a professional back to you. Um, and, you know, so but I will say there are good ways to ask questions and there there are ways that, you know, there 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 are ways to also kind of get you to try to riled up. But if they realize early on that you're not going to do that, it, they cut to the chase most of the time. Um, and I will say is, is, you know, one of the 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 best kind of, I guess, you know, things that you can get compliments is when opposing counsel comes to you a little bit later and asks you if you would, you know, for another client after a deal's over, either because they either liked you or they don't want to see you again on the other side. Yeah. They want to hire you hundred percent agree. Like we'll get in situations where I'll hire an expert because they're on the other side. And I was so impressed by how they presented. And that just is a great presentation to the jury when the guy's like, no, 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 I testified against Mr. Stein six months ago for the, the issue was whatever it was. Um, but I'm so neutral about just following the, the facts and the law that, that we're good. And, you know, a lot of times you can also get brought in, you know, as a consulting expert. That's really a compliment because, yeah, they don't necessarily want you to testify. They want you to help them. And they also don't want you on the other side. So they're somewhat paying you to stay out of the case a little bit there. I mean, obviously, there's a lot more to it on the consulting side because you can help out. And and that field of, of, of bankruptcy, restructuring and litigators and the expert it's really collegial. Everybody gets along, gets along. really it's a, well. It's, it's, I mean, it's a small yeah. group. You better treat people the right way. Exactly. So we, we talk a lot on this podcast about marketing, business development. So that is part of your role now. I mean, yeah. you've got to, someone's got to want to hire you. So talk yeah. about kind of your approach to marketing, both your, what your firm does and then kind of how you look at it. Yeah. So, you know, our group, uh, we, we kind of have our own little marketing plan. Um, I primarily focus on uh, lenders, um, which is relationships I already have or, 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 through kind of connections. I'm really not cold calling as much on lenders because it's really difficult to get to the decision makers that are out there. So I will use my network. And if I find a way in, because typically for a lender client for us, we're going to need to be at the chief risk officer, the chief appraiser, or uh, you know, somebody on the underwriting team that's high up. Uh, so I will try to, to network to find folks that know them, whether it actually be through lending counsel, et cetera. 
Um, we host a lot of, of events. We host a lot of education events. Um, and, you know, we're not afraid to also ask where our clients, uh, hey, you know, do you know so-and-so? Because as I mentioned, it's collegial. The other thing that we've benefited a lot from is you do a good job and people will talk. And it could be the, the senior associate that leaves one firm and goes to another, gets over there and realize they have a crap vendor doing something and says, hey, have you used these guys? And we're like, no, let's give them a shot. And so, you know, treating everybody at all levels of your clients, whether it be the first year person that's green that doesn't know and you're like frustrated, oh God, why are they asking this stupid question? You never know if that person four or five years from now is gonna show up some ways. In today's world, you know, could be your next source of business. That's right. And I'll add with you specifically, it's just being really likable and being fun to be around, yeah, right? Yeah, I mean, people yeah, want to do work with people who they want to be around. Yeah. And, and me and you've talked a lot about going back to golf. Like that's such a great business marketing tool as well. It is, whether it's playing in a charity tournament and taking folks out, whether it's, it's, it's going to take people to a golf tournament to watch it, whether it's going out and playing golf. Um, you know, uh, I've been, been fortunate to, to have played in a lot of tournaments. I've been, you know, fun tournaments on the charity side, uh, and I've met a lot of great people out there. Uh, I've met a lot of great people at some events. Um, I've been fortunate to go down and play an event also at uh, Harbortown for the past four years um, and have really made a lot of great connections down there. Um, that's, yeah, I have had to miss the SEC championship for it. Um, but always that first week of December. You, you know what, there. though? There's the past few years I haven't minded watching the game down there. Right. Um, but it's uh, so, you know, there's a lot of relationships that are out there. There's a lot of uh, people in uh, roles that I'd like to meet that golf is a way to get get to them. I always they're more relaxed on the golf course. Totally. That's it. And you spend four hours, you're in a confined space, yeah. in an open space at the same time, but you have, a, you have a captive audience. I tell young lawyers all the time, you know, learn to play golf. Don't even be good. Just get, get around a golf course. Play exactly. fast. Understand the rules. Be cool. Um, and just the amount of opportunities, it just, it just opens up. So. Yeah, play, play fast. <laughs> or don't play slow, I should say. And, you know, know one to pick up the ball, have a good time. Yeah, don't don't be running around when people are swinging the club. Play some music and have some fun. Have some fun, yeah. And we this this uh, this week is PGA Championship week. It is. Right? It is. We've um, got you, uh, Southern Hills. Southern Hills. I mean, you've you've attended lots of golf tournaments. I'm always jealous of the places that you go. Southern Hills is where the that's in Oklahoma. Have you, Tulsa. Tulsa. Have you ever been there before? I have not been to. Tulsa what, what do you know about that golf course? Uh, yeah, I know that from when it's hosted a bunch of other majors. Uh, yeah, Tiger actually won there in uh, 2007. It was 7,000 degrees that day. Yeah, it was. And, and yeah, PGA Championship is no longer in August. One of the reasons why they did move it uh, actually up to the spring is to bring venues like Southern Hills back into it. Some of the more hot weather venues that players in some of the Texas venues where players were like in August. It was brutal. It was, you, yeah, it was, it was hard yeah, to watch. Yeah. I mean, they're just dripping. They're wearing pants. It's yeah. And so, you know, it's, it's a traditional golf course. It's long. Um, you know, it's got a lot of history to it. You know, you're going to see trees, you know, it's probably, you know, it's a, like I said, traditional, you know, it's, uh, which PGA likes doing kind of the, the long, hardcore, long, harder courses. Um, you know, not a ton of water out there. Um, there are some shorter holes. Uh, those shorter holes have the tougher greens. So, you know, it's a very fair golf course. Um, but you know, it's, it's, going to be difficult out there the question on everybody's mind that follows golf is is scheffler going to win again is that guy ever going to come down to reality or just continue to ride this tiger-esque like wave you know it's 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 amazing what he's done but 
especially considering how good the competition is out there right now. Uh, yeah, there are, you know, when you go out to the majors, you know, look at, you can go look at what the odds are for, for this upcoming tournament. There's a lot of guys that really can win. Um, and, so it's and, funny you say that. I looked at the odds and Scheffler's not even the odds on favorite. Who, who is the odds on favorite? Rom. John Rom. John Rom. Yeah. And, you know, they've traded back and forth, number one player in the world, back and forth. And, you know, golf golf is a funny game. And, and you look at someone like Scheffler, he got hot. I mean, the guy w- went on fire. Um, and just, you know, you can look and see. I'm not going to say that he's going to do that. But David Duvall was a former number one that didn't last very long either. Um, you know, I think that he's got the ability to continue to compete. But I just don't think that with the competition that's out there um, that – he will be able to to replicate what he's done. I think he will definitely win again. He's probably got a couple more majors in him. But I'm, if, I'm, if it's this year, I don't know. I'm reading a book right now, coincidentally, called Raising the Bar. It was written in 2002 about Tiger, kind of going over his first five years. And we lived through it, and we're golf fans, but you just forget how dominant he was. And it just seems impossible to think someone could do that again. But Scheffler, I mean, he made Masters a snooze fest. He did. And, and you know, it's, it's interesting that, that – He's not the favorite, um, but like to your point, the field is just so deep. I mean, Rory McIlroy has the same odds as him to win. Uh, I'd love to see Rory win another one. It's been too long, in my opinion. It is. It, it it's uh, like I said, is is the the competition, and you know, it's nothing against Tiger. Tiger changed this game for for good, and every single player on that tour has him to thank for for their retirement and, and the purses they're playing for. But you know. Who was Tiger's biggest competition? It it changed yearly, and and what he did is 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 going to be probably the most what we'll see in our time. But you know there wasn't Justin Thomas, Jordan Spieth, Scheffler, Schauffele, Rom, Dustin Johnson. You name it. There was only in Tiger's peak, and he went through him left and right. I mean, he just maybe that's what he did. He maybe he killed Duvall. I mean, like who knows? <laughs> so me, so me and you are in several golf pools, yeah. and, and uh, we text every week about who we're going to choose. I'm not just blowing smoke up your ass. Like you're pretty good at picking. I mean, you you, you pulled some. Remember Scott Percy a couple years Scott, ago? Scott Piercy. Piercy. Scott, Scott Piercy was we, a winner. We know he was, and like holy shit, he I won. Think that, I think maybe like that was the only tournament he ever won and, and we picked it. And, and then you you picked Keegan Bradley last Keegan, week. Keegan really Bradley so, last week. So who's our 2022 pick for the PGA Championship? You know, I I I think that I'm actually going to go with Sandra Shoffley. Oh, it's funny. I went with him on the Masters. And I, he didn't, he didn't have the showing, so I was not going to do him again. But I love that pick. I love the Xander pick. Um, nothing wrong with that at all. He's, uh, I don't think he's playing this week. I know Thomas and Spieth are playing this week. Scheffler's playing this week, or actually Thomas, I don't know if is, but but you know it's in Dallas, so you know those those Texas guys are going to go play to support their their home state tournaments to draw a crowd out for them. So I'm growing Rory. Uh, I I made that selection before I looked at the odds. I don't like his odds being where they are. I wish he was a little bit lower. But I just I've, I've always liked Rory. Um, he's in good form. He played well last week. We took him one of our pools last week, actually. So I'm going Rory. So speaking of, so so I got Rory. You got Xander. Yep. We'll check in see how we go. Speaking of speaking of golf, people have heard me before talk about how I'm a Colt Nose fanboy. Oh uh, yeah, I uh, love golf subpar. He, that show is one of the reasons why I started this one. You actually you're friends with him. I, I had the pleasure of meeting Colt when he was, or, or should I say, Bolt? Um, Bolt Nosed. He was a senior in college, and he had won the U.S. Amateur and U.S. Public Links, and he was here playing the Dogwood uh, and was hosted by a buddy of mine. And we were younger back then, and we would go out with the players. And uh, so uh, 
went out with him on two or three nights in a row, kind of hit it off, you know, fun guy. He was 21 and not, shit, I was old. Um, but uh, stayed in touch over the years. Uh, seen him a few times since he came back through, had some fun nights with him. Uh, unbelievable, uh, you know, kind of story and, and, and a great personality and great for the game of golf, um, you know, with what he's – the friendships that he's got and the way that he's able to get into the mind of the younger golfers. Um, and you know, the, the sleazy man, I haven't had the pleasure of meeting, but yeah, just the whole Jicky Jack thing. They're, they're such a good one, two punch. Those of you that phenomenal. like golf and like, just, just like hanging out, bro talk, like check out golf subpar. Can, can you send this to Colton? Maybe he'll listen to I this. Will, and, I can send it to him um, and, and tell him that I'm going to give him a little bit of love. Uh, I texted with him, uh, masters week cause he was, uh, on featured group. And, uh, I, I had to hear his voice waddle around the golf course. You were texting me and you're like, you're like, you're like, Hey Josh, I, I'm texting with Colt. How quickly can you get a podcast up and running to, 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 you know, I think you said, well, do you have the technology? Yes. Get, I said, I will find that technology. Cause I think he's hilarious and the, the, all the golfers love him. I mean, they, they get on the show, they open up, they tell great stories. So Colt, if you're listening, I appreciate you, man. Keep doing what you're doing. You have an open invitation to sports and torts whenever you want. <laughs> all right. Uh, Next thing I'll talk about is you travel a lot for work. Yes. And you go, you, you travel obviously by plane, but you also drive a lot. And one of your main places to stop is Bucky's. Yeah. Am I saying that right? Bucky's? Uh, yep. And I've traveled a bunch through Texas. So I've got experience outside of the Georgia. Yes. So you are a walking, talking spokesman for Bucky's. We, me and you went to play golf up at Macklemore last year. I'd never been. And you planned a whole hour excursion. So for people that don't know, explain what Bucky's is. Talk about why you love it and what your strategy is when you walk into a place like that. Bucky's is like a, a Disney world of convenience stores. I mean, it's, I think those stores are 15, 20,000 square feet, hundred plus gas pumps. I mean, you pull up there and you're like, Oh my God, if you don't have anxiety, you will until you walk in and uh, you know, they're out of Texas. It will be the cleanest bathrooms you've ever seen in your entire life. Um, they have unbelievable food. Um, they are well known for their kolaches. I highly recommend the cheddar jalapeno. Um, their beef jerky, which if you don't have, they actually have a beef jerky case. Like we're talking like a butcher case with 15, 20 different varieties. The bohemian garlic, phenomenal. Uh, but where it's really at is in the mornings they do breakfast burritos. Um, phenomenal as well. But uh, when they break out the brisket, which they chop in front of you, um, or slice in front of you and get either brisket to go by the pound, or I highly recommend the chopped sandwich sauce. So, so you and our mutual friend, Lawrence Kessler, who's been on this podcast before, obviously y'all have a disagreement about the, the barbecue. Thing. Listen, he's Buc not a fan. He thinks that you oversell it. Bucky Bucky's isn't it's, it's, it's not, you know, going to Franklin or style switch in Austin or one of these, I'd say, you know, but it is as good a beef brisket as you will find in the state of Georgia. Um, and and I, I will stand by that. I just don't think Larry understands brisket. That's, I mean, a, that's a big sell. If it, comes, if it comes down to fried food and buns, Larry's on it. But I'm not taking it when it comes to brisket. Larry's a bun guy for sure. Uh, I like the breakfast taco, the, the breakfast brisket taco, better than the lunch sandwich. The, the brisket taco, I mean, it is, it's solid. Speaking yeah. of tacos, actually another food question? Yeah. You, one of your superpowers back in the day was being able to, we would throw you out menu items at Taco Bell and you would be able to come up with exact, exact price. 
Can you still do that? No, I can't. And even if I could have done it six months ago with the way inflation's rising, yeah, there's no telling. I mean, when's the last time you guys went to a restaurant and didn't see like a piece of masking tape over, you know, the, the price on the sign and like, or, you know, if they don't have digital menu boards, they're having to like put things on cardboard with prices rising so but fast. You, you do remember doing that, right? Like we'd oh, throw yeah. an order out at you and you, um, do you want to how much a taco cost right now? I, a Taco I, Bell. I'm going to have to say $1.99 or something. That high? I mean, we talking beef supreme. I mean, we, we. I mean, there's just there's a lot more to it. I mean, chicken soft. All right, let's do this. Let's do this. I, I, I did put an order together for you. Yeah. To see if you could still do this, we'll give you two chances. First one: two hard tacos, one taco supreme, and a bean burrito. He's calculating his head right 640? now. Six forty. 706. Oh, so that's so, the inflation. A little inflation. All right. Now, here's an interesting here, 10%. I mean, we're right yeah, on you're, there. You were pretty like, close. Is, yeah. You were pretty close. Now, I also saw something on their website that they called the Born X Raised Combo that they put together themselves. Have you seen this before? No, I haven't. All I'm right. just excited about the Mexican pizza coming back. So, so the, the Born X Raised Combo consists of a black bean crunch wrap, which I do not know what that is, yeah. a bean burrito a spicy potato soft taco, cinnamon twists, and a large fountain drink. Is that for one person? <laughs> yes. That is the number six online or whatever it is. How many calories are we talking? It's called a, it, it said beware of sodium. Something like sodium monster or something like this. I mean, it's, does it come with a side of, of like Lipitor or something? <laughs> I told you what it comes with. But what do you think they're charging for that? Uh, I don't know. Is that like six ninety nine? <laughs> Eight ninety nine. Eight ninety nine. Inflation. Inflation gets you. God again. Almighty! You may want to find some of your personal injury colleagues to hand out cards walking out of the drive-through after people eat that thing. I could make you sign a waiver. I couldn't believe born X raise combo. I don't know. Well, you're a good sport with with those questions. Um, so this is what I want to do now. We mentioned Garrett was here with us. Garrett Nell, who's a mutual friend of ours. Y'all have y'all have done work together in in both yeah. of y'all's space. Garrett's a, a, an accomplished lawyer. Um, so let's do this. Let's, let's bring him in. Uh, he's been making us drinks so now we can have him talk as well. And, and I'll let y'all kind of go back and forth. Garrett, my man. Welcome buddy. Hey guys. You've been hanging out, listening, making making some drinks for us. You know, a little depressed. Um, I've been a lawyer 15 years and Bob's never asked me to sign my card. <laughs> I had a whole, I had a whole whole case made for him. Did you? Yeah, I you mean, he's never even asked me for it. I like, have your, I have your Troutman you. 2007 rookie card. Is that so, what it was? So, so let me back this back. Let me back this up a little bit. So, so Garrett, you worked, uh, and we're, we're having you on the podcast, you know, I think the, the week after this so that we can kind of dump that all together. But, um, you worked at big firms, you and Bob did work together. Um, I think you have hired Bob, Bob has hired you. So I don't really know all the ins and outs of what y'all done, but, but talk about your relationship with Bob professionally and the kind of stuff that y'all have seen and done together. Yeah, I think our, our first professional interaction, um, Bob was working with Shelly Willis. Yes. A former, uh, well, actually, she's now she's back. back at Trout Sanders. I actually saw her last night. I was um, supposed to have lunch with her on Monday, but we just rescheduled. <laughs> a wonderful real estate attorney that when I got to the firm as a very junior lawyer, uh, I saw his name come across a conflicts check or, or something like that and went upstairs and said, Shelly, I know this guy. And she said, oh, he's a fantastic client at Bank of America. <laughs> I started in 2007, which was the, the catalyst of the Great Recession as a bankruptcy lawyer, pure, pure dumb luck that, that I ended up in bankruptcy. And we were very busy, very quick. And uh, yeah. 
one of my clients became Robert. So I got to say, Robert, for the last 34, 45 minutes, has talked very intelligently about bankruptcy and real estate world and banking and uh, pretty impressive, right? I mean, has that been your experience working with him? Absolutely. We've put him on the stand before. Uh, or we've geared him up because yeah. he, he, he talks with that much confidence on the stand as well. And it goes over just like <laughs> that on part you. Of it though? Like if you say, well, I, absolutely. I, I mean, well, look, Robert knows what he's doing. He's, he's credentialed to, to the ninth degree. And if you um, don't, there's always Google. That's right. Um, it, it, so we worked together when he was at the bank. Um, we did a lot of the, the workout work for yeah. him, whether that was recovering assets in bankruptcy, suing guarantors, suing borrowers, putting receivers in place, doing all that sort of work for him. And then I changed firms and uh, Robert helped us at my new firm get a role in that uh, so Reynolds that, case. So is that an example that Robert's talking about that you changed firms and because of your prior relationship with Robert introduced your new firm? To him and his company. That that's yeah. exactly right. And and to key off on, on something you were saying earlier, I, I went to work with a partner, a good friend of both of ours, John Isbell. John Isbell had a relationship with the receiver, who Robert was instrumental in being appointed over the Reynolds Lodge's yeah. assets. And there was also a statement of trust out there, and he had a relationship with his trustee. <laughs> and since we'd all worked together and been impressed with each other's work, we came in and, and were able to help on that deal. It was really interesting. Now we work together on uh, more interesting deals. Um, I've, I've moved to a smaller shop now, and Robert calls me. I, I don't know, maybe once every other month with, with some problem, and it's not <laughs> it's not a ten million dollar problem because that goes to my old firm. It's the million dollar problem, but the million dollar problems are almost always more complicated and have more hair on them. So, but once, yeah. once a month, uh, every other month he calls me and says, all right, stand by. I'm yeah. It's, it's just as, it's just as hard to close a $10 million loan as it is a hundred million dollar loan. It just, right. it just, yeah. So I've got a Sharpie. I've got a camera. I've got a printer. We can get this lawyer baseball card. <laughs> printed out. We, we can make this work. Uh, so, so Robert talk about well, you know, talk about Garrett as, as both a client back then and now as somebody he used to work to. I mean, how fun is it to be able to accomplish good work with, with people who you like being around? It, it, it makes, you know, I will say this, uh, you know, like what you do and like who you do it with even more. Uh, you know, it makes things go go by much, you know, you know, much easier, much quicker and a lot more fun. Working with friends, especially when they are very good at what they do, um, is, is always a bonus. Um, yeah, it makes things, like I said, you know, it's, you're able to, to blend a little bit of work and, uh, personal life together, um, have a little bit of fun and both, you know, have success together. Uh, Gary and I worked on things said from guys that were hiding out, um, trying to figure out where we were going to find them to serve them their papers. Um, some of these guys were, 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 you know, really good at what they did. Let's, yeah, let, out. let's hear mean, some, let's hear some war stories. Yeah. I mean, what, what, what are some, some interesting kind of cases y'all worked on? And I know you mentioned to me a while ago, back about chasing people yeah. down and getting them served and what, what you got people down. Um, you know, one of my favorites that, that my, one of my current bosses says to me now is when, when I actually worked with him when I was at bank of America, he was at Alvarez and Marsal and we were in a meeting with a borrower at the time. And, trying to figure out exactly what we we're going to do with the assets and, you know, whatnot. And the guy was kind of pleading and 
He literally said, if you guys go forward and foreclose, my wife and daughter are going to be dancing on a pole. And, oh, and like, yeah, you're like, oh my, like, yeah. That's what do you want your to conscious do? now. Like, yo, I'd say I'm conscious. And I'm like, what, this guy is absolutely crazy. If they're, if he's telling me they're going to dance on a pole, what is he going to do next? Um, yeah, that's one. We had a guy that had two families, um, you know. And, you know, it's not enough to have a mistress. He actually had children with both women, and he would spend like six days here. And they thought he was building houses out of state. Um, so we had to kind of serve him. And I think his second family found out, or second family kept him. Um, the first wife kicked him out. Um, I th- I, the second may have actually known about the first. Um, you know, I've seen all sorts of things. Um, you know, People, when you go make a loan, you've got collateral, you've got credit, and you've got character. You can only underwrite character so much because people, when their back's against the wall, things are changing. Garrett, you've probably seen seen that, you know, a ton of times. We, we've, we've seen, you know, we've really seen unbelievable things done, <laughs> done by people to avoid um, – Paying their obligations. That's one guy that actually got divorced on paper. Yeah, he gave yeah. all of his money to his wife. I hope she went back to him. <laughs> you, you see it all. You see fake divorces. You see fraudulent transfers. You see uh, folks that look at you with, you know, in absolute judgment that you're asking them to pay back the money that they borrowed and then <laughs> used to buy very expensive. How things. dare you? So how do you sniff out somebody that's trying to be a be, be a fraudster. Well, it's, it's just business. You got to be business-like. Yeah. You know, trust but verify. Um, you get a pretty good feel for people that are being honest or not. And, and you get duped sometimes. You get mm-hmm. real cynical. Um, Josh, you probably deal deal with this uh, with claims adjusters. You know, they're they're just actually cynical. Well, they see. You know, they see the BS <laughs> stories all day. So you've got to have that radar up. Um, and you got to know, you know, money is, in a, is a tremendously powerful thing that people do crazy things to preserve or gain or protect. I mean, just open up the news and, and any given day and you see what people are willing to do. So you got to, you got to sneak that out. There's all kinds of ways to catch people doing things. And it's, it's sort of one slip up and they go, Robert and I, um, you know, we like to play good cop, bad cop sometimes. I was going to ask that yeah. at the yeah. approach y'all took about good cop, bad cop is the best way to describe it. Well, well that's right. Yeah. Because some clients, you know, they don't talk. They're there. They're in the back room. Probably not going to surprise you. Robert sits right there at the table next to you, and you say, well, let me introduce ourselves. That that might be the last thing the lawyer says for the next hour or two. And we'll tee off each other and run interference, and um, it's it's by design, and it works. You know, you you get the best deal at the end. Who's better at being the good cop and who's better at being the bad cop? It really depends. It really depends. Y'all play both roles? Yeah, you got to be. And and that's also, you know, working with some of of my colleagues, we were able to do that well, too. Uh, You know, especially if you're working with another borrower or another uh, professional services firm, restructuring firm is, is one guy can kind of be kind of the, you know, you're not being, you know, but you're more blunt. You deliver the bad news sort of thing. And, and, you know. I learned from from very early on boss of mine during that I learned work on restructuring from is, 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 you know. Yeah, can't be afraid to deliver a bad message. And I think something that, that he's always said is, is, and it goes to all sorts of businesses, I can handle bad news. I can't handle surprises. That's right. That, that's that's right. 100% right. I'll never forget a workout meeting I had with a banker's big bank here in Georgia. And uh, we were, I, I was on the borrower side and it was, uh, we, were in, we were in a bad situation. And we, we called a meeting with the bank. The banker walked in, he sat down, and he goes, well, let me just get this out at the start. We are ending our relationship with you. So with that in mind, 
let's figure out how we do it. And I thought to myself, well, I guess there's no uh, sugar coating. We now, we now, let's just one. get right yeah. to it. I got a good one. We went on my first kind of really big workout that I was working on myself and was a large uh, home builder that had gone unsecured. And one of their triggers of default, they had to secure. And we're talking, this was thousands of homes across the country. And we fly up to Pennsylvania. We get in the car. We drive 45 minutes to their office. We sit down. And my boss starts the meeting with, gentlemen, before we move forward, you guys need to hand over the signatures for the securing collateral. And the guy says, we're not doing that. Got to remember, he had flown up from Florida. I'd flown up from Atlanta. He grabs his stuff, packs his shit up, and we walk out the door. And and we had one other guy with, and I'm like, we just can't like. And he was, I was like following his lead. I'm like, yo, just tailing behind and making sure we didn't leave anything behind. We literally flew up five minutes in the room, turned our asses back, slammed the door, and walked out. And he was like, they don't want to play ball. They don't want to play ball. And I'm like, all right. Like, you well, know. From a negotiation strategy, like you kind of had to do that, right? It's like I mean, you had, you had to show them that you were equally as meaning business as they were. Exactly. It, it's a different world, right? So everyone, not everyone, a lot of people watching Don, Johnny Depp trial right now, right? When <laughs> Very we're, fascinating. When we're in court on these issues, nobody's ever said it's fascinating, except maybe the people in there. My mom always says, hey, I want to come watch you in court. Like, you don't want to come down to bankruptcy court. You have no idea what's going on. It's boring. If somebody puts their arms up, that, I mean, that's like the worst thing you'll see. There's no skirmishing. Um, so it's it's kind of that environment. So it's really little subtle wins that you right. get yeah. there. And only the people in the room kind of understand, oh, that was kind of an assholic move that he just did. Nobody else, no else knows. Really gets it, no, yeah. The judge knows, but that's yeah. about it. It's, I mean, it's, it's pretty boring stuff. I mean, it, unless you're in the scene. Uh, but it, be, it can become interesting, yeah. little stories no, like that. Yeah, well, it's cool. Y'all can do work together. Uh, before we finish up, I mean, when, when you have Robert as a client on the stand and you're you're questioning him in open court, like, how do you keep a straight face? How do you, how do you stay professional with it? Because I would have such a hard time looking at him, knowing him, <laughs> and trying to keep it professional. So, so we have um, we have been, we've prepared to testify numerous times. My partners and colleagues have taken him. Okay. The last time he was going to actually testify in court, I think – he played bad cop, yeah, and they folded on the courthouse steps, uh, or inside the courthouse. Right. Um, so I have watched him do this. Probably I smart. Had, Probably I haven't had smart. to actually do it uh, because you, you know, you're a lawyer. You know, you, it's all the a- animation and the. Yeah. Oh, really? Well, then how is it that that's been practiced? <laughs> well, if, if if the time does come that that you have Robert on the stand on a case you're working on and you're examining him, I can promise you there's gonna be 25 people tailgating outside, just waiting to come in and sit and watch because that that's beautiful. It, we're, it, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna have motion have the courtroom closed and just let you guys come in on a Zoom feed. <laughs> Good luck with that, man. It's an open forum. Well, this was fun. I'm, I appreciate Garrett, you uh, you hopping in. Robert had a great time talking with you. Thank I've learned, you. I've learned a lot about all the stuff that 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 you that you do. I mean, I'm always impressed with like, your knowledge of all this and banking and, and finance and just just all of it. So so good on you, man. Um, tell folks where they can find you. Lawyers listening might need your services. So so website for your firm, social media handles for you. What you got? Uh, Ankura.com, A-N-K-U-R-A.com. Uh, look me up on the webpage there if you need me. Uh, I am on LinkedIn, and uh, that's about it. Uh, hey, you, got, you got an Instagram handle, don't you? I got, yeah, but I don't. Don't really use it. it. Yeah. And, and, and let me add this on all the joking aside. If, if you hire Robert and, and his firm for a serious matter, you're going to get 
top notch. Yeah, like, and, like and, defendable and, work. I mean, that's why. Friends aside, we hire his firm because they can they can withstand the cross examination and deliver a good product, and that that's a, a very uh, thank you very, very much. serious thing you, that you look for. In this I think that's a very good point. Is that just because, and we kind of touched on this, but just because someone says, "Hey, I'm an expert witness, I can do these things," doesn't mean that you you can survive the attacks, yep. not only of the other attorney but of the court well, that will that will say we. You don't want to do something that is going to jeopardize the rest of your career by getting out over something or doing something that you're not capable of doing. And you also have to remember, you've got your your history is your history. You can't go back if you take a position in 2022. Yeah, you can't go back in 2032. Somebody's going to find it and say, "Well, this methodology you said." What happened in 10 years? Then you're toast. Yeah. And, and, and then you're damaged. It, it's goes. true. I have a, a, a published federal court decision calling one of Robert's uh, colleagues, not working with him, but in his industry, a, quote, purported expert. Yeah. And then it eviscerated him. And, uh, and you're done. Well, that's going to follow this expert around. Somebody's going to find that. Yep. Yeah. And a federal judge calling you a purported expert is not a Because if you're cross-examining that person, what's the first question you ask them? Are you a real expert or a purported expert? And he'll say a real sir? one, and you'll say, well, no, judge so-and-so doesn't this. Judge. And then at that point, the judge is like, I mean, it's the, the, the jury stops listening. Yeah. yeah. The next question is, how much are you charging for this? And then it's, and then it's over. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, this, is, this was too much fun. Garrett, you know what we're going to do? We're going to have you stick around, and we're going to do another one of these with you. All right. So uh, maybe Robert will pop it in the end. You never know. But, uh, hey, everybody, thank you all for listening. Hope you enjoyed this kind of combo podcast with some business and and with a legal legal slant to it. Uh, If you enjoyed it, please tell a friend. If you are in a legal field and need someone like Robert as an expert witness or a consultant, give him a call. And until next time, as always, keep chopping.